it's interesting we're going to be in the book of Hebrews and as I've said it before you know you have to ask yourself um, why the woman really struggled when the men asked for a cup of coffee and the woman quotes scripture and says well Hebrews went right over everybody's head didn't it right over it oh bada ching bada ching this is as bad as my dad jokes my kids would say so um we're going to be in the book of Hebrews. We're going to be in chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 8 through 14 and the first two verses of chapter 2. You know, I've been telling you, I've been working on the book I'm writing on wisdom literature, and I would be remiss without really covering the importance of the deity of Jesus Christ. And Hebrews really sinks into it here. So we're going to read this and dig into it and try to unpack it and understand it. Because there's a lot of uh, false teaching out there today that tries to teach that, you know, Jesus is just a created being or he's Michael the Archangel and stuff like that, which is, as you will read yourself, is very unbiblical. So if you can follow along with the overhead, you guys listening around the world, same thing. So let me start. <clears throat> Hopefully I'll keep my voice. Starting at verse 8. But of the Son, he says... Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter in his kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. <clears throat> Look at verse 9. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy companions. Thou, Lord, in the beginning did lay the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They will perish, but thou remainest, and they all will become old as a garment, and as a mantle thou wilt roll them up, as a garment thou wilt be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Now look at verse 2. <clears throat> for this reason, what he's been sharing in chapter 1. Look at this church, this is so important. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation after it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. So how is a church that people can attend a church week after week, month after month, year after year? They can hear the EU Galian. They can hear the message of the cross, the gospel. They hear the word of God being preached and taught. Many know that they need Christ but yet, they're not willing to surrender their lives over to Him. They know deep down in their hearts that what God's Word says is truth, and yet, 
they still don't want to commit to Christ. I hope that's none of us. So slide four. Let's put up slide four. And we're going to stay on slide four for a little bit because I have some other stuff I want to share. So let me repeat verse 8 and 9 of chapter 1. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You've loved righteousness. You've hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. What do you notice of him? God the Father, right here in the text, is calling God the Son God. Jesus is God in the flesh. I want to also, and it's not up here, you can stay on slide four, I want to teach a little bit for just a moment about this being born again. This uh, John 3.16 and Psalm 2, I'm going to take just a little snippet here. We all know John 3.16, for God so loved the world, or because God loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, right? The monogonase, the unique one. No one else like Christ. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life, right? How about Psalm 2.6? It's not up there. Let me read this to you. Psalm 2.6 and 7. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion. We're talking about the coronation of a king here in the text. I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord, or Yahweh. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So we have this begetting, this begotting. You know, the, the Hebrew word and the Greek word are a little different, but they essentially mean the same thing. But the whole background of this begotten really in the Old Testament also speaks of lineage. It comes from the notion of this, this coronation. A son, church, who becomes a king because he's begotten of his father. How does a son become a king? Think about it. Because his father was a king. Because they share the same family heritage, the same genealogical line. They have the same royal blood. This, this declaration of begetting, church, is that that we share something together and we are united in something. One God, three persons, one God. This is why the Son has the same status that the Father has. Even though they're distinct persons, it's unity even though there's distinctions. So this begs the question, what makes Jesus unique, as John 3.16 clearly tells us? Listen. Jesus completely shares the exact same nature and essence of God the Father. Jesus and the Father are one in nature and in essence. Let's never forget that. This is what is meant by begotten or begetting, even though they are distinct persons. They completely share and are in complete union in their essence. So how are you and I born again? How can we be changed so that we can share in God's holiness and commune with Him. It's because God, from all eternity, shared Himself with His Son. Again, they are one in essence and in nature, even though they are distinct persons. So God's relationship with His Son is the only reason that you and I can have a relationship with God the Father. It's through Jesus Christ. So in Hebrews 1... We have God the Father calling the Son God, your throne, your thronos. 
of God is forever and ever. First, I want you to notice his words, but of the Son he says. The Greek is de proston huion, huion meaning son. And that word of is the same word that we've learned from John 1. It's the word pros. So what does this tell? It, it gives us kind of this idea of God the Father tells you and I that the Father and the Son were facing each other, and God the Father is calling the Son God. That's your proston huion, or in John 1, 14, or John 1, 1, you know, you have the proston theon, was with God. So God the Son, from all eternity past, has always been with God the Father. There's never been a time when the Son has not existed with the Father. You have Psalm 2. You have Hebrews 1, 8, and 9 backing that up. So what's the Father telling his Son? You know, we have that coronation back in Psalm 2. Your throne, O God. Imagine God the Father calling God the Son God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now, the Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews is again quoting from the Old Testament. This is uh, slide 5, Psalm 45, 6 and 7. Again, you see the Old Testament, New Testament. 60% of your, old, your New Testament is Old Testament. But what does he say? Your throne of God is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness, you've hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, see, even back there, your God has anointed you with the oil of joy above your companions. Notice, he doesn't identify Jesus as Michael, the archangel, or Gabriel, or a God. He uses the word theos, which means God. So what do we see? The Father is calling his son God, and he is also declaring his son's superiority over all of the angels. Jesus is the creator of all things, including angels, as we've already learned from Scripture. So God has appointed and declared his son Jesus as heir and commands the angels to worship him, as you read. Why? Because the Father loves the only unique, one-of-a-kind, monogenes, the unique one, the Son of God. Pay attention to that word throne there. Think about it. What is a throne? You know, we're, we're reading this. What is a throne? The, the author... What, think about it. What does the author of Hebrews and Psalms mean when they use that word throne? That word thronos. Now the Hebrew word is kasei. Both words, thronos and kasei, the Old Testament word and the New Testament word, has this idea of a, of a very high stately seat, a seat of power, a seat of authority, and complete rulership. Both words denote a place of extreme honor, church. Think about it. In fact, back in Genesis 41, we don't have time to go there, Pharaoh had what? Put Joseph over everything in his kingdom except his throne. Here God the Father is telling his son, his throne, his place of honor, power and authority over everything is something that will last forever and ever. You can trust Christ. It will never pass away. The text says, the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. So the best basic question here is, okay, what is a scepter? I just don't want to assume that everybody knows it. The Hebrew word is rabdas. It means a rod, staff, or cane. And the Hebrew word, as it is used here in Psalms, um, is also used as the word shabet. It, it means a branch or stick for punishing, writing, walking. So there's a couple meanings to it as it is unpacked here in the scripture. 
In fact, Webster's Dictionary even just, uh, gives us a definition. Um, they call it a rod or staff, highly or ornamented, held by rulers on ceremonial occasions as a symbol of sovereignty, royal or imperial, imperial authority. Wow. But notice, back in the text, the writer Hebrews calls it a righteous scepter. It's not just any scepter, church. So we need to ask the question, okay, what does this word righteous mean as it is used in the text? The Greek word is youth taste. The word means uprightness or a consequence of being honorable, honest, and straight. So how do we knit this together? What are we drawing out of the text? Well, here, the author of Hebrews is speaking of the perfect justice and righteousness that Jesus the Christ rules with. Jesus doesn't bend the rules, church. So that righteous scepter is very symbolic of his authority. He is God and we are not. In fact, Psalm 97 says this, slide 6. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are what? The foundation of his throne. Do you see that? I want to make sure that we clearly understand the meaning of these words. Righteousness. Sedek is the Hebrew, or the, Greek, yeah, the Hebrew word. It's a, actually a masculine noun in the Hebrew church. Uh, it, it has the idea of, of a right relationship to an ethical or legal standard. No bending of the rules. Kings and leaders and judges were to execute their duties based on a righteous standard. The second word here is justice. The word there in Hebrew is mispal. It's also a masculine noun, meaning judgment or a legal decision. So then this perfect righteousness and justice that we're learning about are the foundational principles to the Messiah's throne and his rulership. God does not grade on a curve. He doesn't strike backroom deals. How about slide 7? Hebrews 1.9. He goes on to say, You've loved... Righteousness, you've hated lawlessness. As a result, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. Slide 8. Let me show you how Peter O'Brien, a theologian, unpacks this. This is his commentary on Hebrews. He says, In Hebrews, the son's anointing with the oil of gladness probably points to the joy with which God has blessed him. Jesus, an acknowledgement of his vindication of divine justice. So the other question I, I had to ask myself was, okay, well, who are the companions? Well, some commentators think this is speaking of the angels because this has been the argument through most of the text for these first eight verses. He's better than the angels, superior to the angels. So the writer of Hebrews states, above your companions. Yet, another commentator feels this is speaking of us, the church. Slide 9. Richard Phillips looks at it this way. He says, We are the companions of whom God speaks. By his righteousness, Christ gains a kingdom, and we are members of that kingdom. We will reign with him and his blessed companions forever and ever. His joy and his righteousness are the blessings he gives to you and I, his royal subjects. Look at verse 10. You, Lord, in the beginning, 
It doesn't say a big bang here? It doesn't say we slithered out of a pond like amoebas floating? It says, you, Yahweh, in the beginning, you, Yahweh, laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. Look at verse 11. They will perish, but you, Yahweh, you remain. The law become like an old garment. <clears throat> so the writer of Hebrews continues under the direction of the Holy Spirit to record what the Father has been saying to the Son. Imagine this conversation with the Father and the Son going back. We get to peek inside of it because of the Holy Spirit to see what's being said. He calls him Lord. You, O Lord. Why is that significant, church? Verse 8, the Father calls Jesus God, which we just read. Here, he calls him Lord. That's, in Hebrew, the Old Testament name that I've been using, Yahweh. Say that name with a lot of reverence, Yahweh, church. That's his name. Consider what Paul says, slide 11, Philippians 2, 8 through 11. This is about Yahweh, about Jesus. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let's never forget that, church. For this reason, God highly exalted him bestowed upon him a name which is about every name so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven on earth and under the earth <coughs> that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father you see that? you have the gospel right there right there is the gospel scriptures never call any angel, Yahweh, ever. Once again, they're quoting the Old Testament, slide 12. Look at Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. <clears throat> of you, of old, you, capital Y, Yahweh, you founded the earth. Heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you're going to endure they're going to wear out like an old garment, like clothing. You will change them and they will be changed. Are you changed this morning? Have you surrendered your life to Jesus the Christ? Are you changed? Is your life different now because of the relationship you have with him? And regarding Yahweh, you're the same. Your years will not come to an end. So I want you to notice this morning, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, Jesus was there. In the beginning, and active. In the beginning, laid the foundations of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. <clears throat> that word beginning is the same one in John 1. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. He was in the beginning with God, right? Ain arcane tulos holosk. That word arcane, the word beginning, means source or origin. So what can we conclude so far about this Jesus? What can we draw out of the text? 
Well, the Father calls Jesus Lord or Yahweh, as we just seen. He calls him God in verse 8. He makes it clear yet again that all creation proceeds from completely from him, depends on Christ before he came to earth. In John 1, 3, slide 13, all things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that's come into being. Think about it. Every breath that you take is because of him. Every beat that your heart beats is because of him. Think about it. Church, do you see the contrast here? God the Son is eternal. He's immutable, meaning he not, he's unchanging and he remains forever. The earth and heavens are going to perish. That word perish that you saw there, the word apololomi, means to decay. The earth is in a state of decay. It don't take a rocket science to see that today, amen? amen. The writer of Hebrews uses the image of a garment that is just completely being shattered and worn out, just torn to tatters. Look at Isaiah 51, 6, slide 15. Lift up your eyes to the sky. Then look to the earth beneath. Written about 700 years before the New Testament. The sky will vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment. See that happening now. Its inhabitants will die in a like manner. We see that happening now. But my salvation will be forever. My righteousness will not wane. And then Revelation 21.1, slide 16. <clears throat> then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there was no longer any sea. The more you dig into scriptures, the more you see it unfolding right now before your very eyes. Verse 12 completes what he started to say in verse 11. Slide 17. And like a mantle or a, a vesture, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will also be changed. But you are the same and your years will not come to an end. So a mantle, as it is used here, is like a covering or a veil or a shawl. So the idea here is that the heavens of the earth will be rolled up and changed, removed, just like clothing that is old and worn out. But again, we see the contrast here. He finishes up with slide 18. But you are the same and your years will not come to an end. Church, hear me this morning. Jesus, who is the creator, sustainer, and ruler of all that is, is present and active in what's going on. He's not up there asleep. When you pray to him, he's not up there. Oh, the batteries in my hearing aid wore out. He's not up there going, I can't see anything. I got cataracts. No. He is active and unchanging and knows what's going on. Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So now that we see the truth about Christ, let me share again some words from Dr. Richard Phillips in his commentary on Hebrews. Slide 20 and 21. <clears throat> I love what Dr. Phillips says here. Do you need pardon for your sins? I know I do. How about you? See him exalted and know that God has accepted the sacrifice of his blood on your behalf. Do you, so you can't get into heaven by earning it, working at it. You can't strike backroom deals or anything like that. Only way that you can get in heaven is if your soul is cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. 
Do you need reconciliation to God? I know I do. How about you? There he is at the right hand interceding for you and offering his own perfect work as the ground for your acceptance. Remember I said the worst about us got placed on Christ and the best about him got placed on us, right? Do you need newness of life, a new heart, a new strength to follow him? Yes. Slide 21. From his heavenly throne, he sends mighty resources, even angels, to your aid. Better yet, he sends the Holy Spirit to work within you with his own power. Church, listen. The same exact power that raised Jesus from the dead is the exact same power that indwells every believer to give them the newness of life and to walk in obedience with him. Don't ever forget that. He does not leave you stranded and powerless. Better yet, he sends the Holy Spirit to work within you with his own power. There is nothing you might face, nothing you might lack, nothing you might need in all your weakness and sin and human frailty that is not found abundantly in him who loves you, gave himself for you, and now reigns forever as Savior and Lord. Amen? Isn't that powerful or what? And look at verse 13, slide 22. But to which of the angels did he ever say, ever, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? I want you to notice again the same language the author used in verse 5. <clears throat> but to which of the angels has he ever said? Look at this statement, sit at my right hand. Now we... The question we can ask here is this. What does the writer of Hebrews mean when he makes this statement, when he's the God the Father is making this statement? What does he mean? Why, why is it so important about sitting at the Father's right hand? That, that word right hand is the word dexios. It has the idea, church, of the highest, absolute highest place of honor. Church, back in the ancient world, Way back, thousands of years ago in the Old Testament times, to sit at a person's right hand was to occupy an incredibly great place of honor. To sit at a king's right hand was more than just a place of great honor. It was a place to also share in his rule. Do you get that? Hear me this morning. No angel has ever, ever, ever been given this highest place of honor. Don't let any false prophet tell you that Jesus is an angel. That's a lie. We're reading it right here. The scriptures tell us who he is. Only God the Son, Jesus Christ, will ever sit in that place. Now again, the writer of Hebrews has been doing something. Again, he's quoting the Old Testament. Slide 23, he's quoting Psalm 110. David, Psalm of David. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So this psalm also speaks of this present place and position that is occupied by Christ. He is right now at this very moment, right now, as I'm speaking here, at his Father's right hand in heaven and has lordship and absolute sovereignty over all creation, including you and I. Notice how he finishes the statement. Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. 
So what is meant by this statement? Again, I want to give us a little bit of context to understand the importance of this. Again, way back in the ancient times, Eastern way of speaking, the idea of making an enemy a footstool was a metaphor for having complete, absolute control over your enemy. See, back then, a king that was conquered by his enemy, the victor would place his foot on the neck of his enemy. He's down on the ground, he's got his foot on his neck. And it was from that practice that we have these words, your enemy's a footstool for your feet. So you need to hear me this morning. Jesus is not the, the baby in the manger. He's not still on the cross. The death he died once for all, the life we live, we live to God. All that's been accomplished. Nowhere in the scriptures can any of this be attributed to an angel. Look at verse 14. Slide 24. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? That word ministering is the word apostello. You know, the apostles, the apostolos, was somebody that was sent out. When we look at that word apostle, we think of an office of the 12 original apostles that were there. And we need to understand that uh, that word apostolos was meant to be sent out on a mission. Okay? So that word ministering is the word apostello. It is the same thing. It means to send out on a mission. It means to set apart. What were the angels set apart and sent out to do? The Bible answers that question for you. They were sent out to render service for the sake of those who inherit salvation. That's you and I. See, we don't see what's going on in that world. We don't have access yet right now with these, these, these eyes that we have. We don't see the battles. We don't see what's going on. We get glimpses of it in the Old Testament where you know the angel had to fight another angel and that's why he was de delayed and so forth. So we see here from the Bible that the angels were given the responsibility to minister to or render service to the heirs of salvation. If you are born again, if you've come to a saving faith in Christ, they're there to minister to you. That's what the text says. That's what verse 14 says. <clears throat> this means, church, that those who are redeemed by the blood of Christ are there to be ministered to. So then the angels are subordinate to God the Son. Not equal to, subordinate. Jesus Christ and are to serve him. Christ instructs them. Excuse me, I'm sorry. <clears throat> He's instructing them to render service to his bride. It's you and I. Let me finish up. Two more verses. Slide 25. Hebrew 2 1. So, from everything we've read, we now come to for this reason. See those words there, right? For this reason. We must pay. Look at this church, please. For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that you and I, church, do not drift away. You see that? We need to understand first, the reason of, is because of what's pointed out. Jesus the Christ is the heir of all things. He is the cause of creation. He is the radiance of his Father's glory. He sustains the universe. 
He's much better than the angels. He is the one who sits at the Father's right hand. So by now, based on the Word of God, you should have a good idea who Jesus the Christ is. He is God the Son. We know what he's done for us. We know that he went to the cross. We know that he bled and died and shed his blood as payment, as an offering for our sin debt. We know that Jesus is God in the flesh. So it should be clear that it's utter foolishness to reject him. Okay? So what is the author of Hebrews saying in today's vernacular? He's saying, listen up. Pay careful attention to this. Okay? In this first verse, there are two important Greek words here. And it's interesting because these are actually nautical terms. To help us get a clear picture of the sobering warning, let's tease these words apart to help us understand what the author wants us to hear. So he says, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard. So for the words, much closer attention, or in the King James, give more interest heed, the word there has the idea of be cautious, Hold something in your mind. Hold a course. Secure an anchor. Okay? So what does the author of Hebrews want you and I to pay attention to? Okay? He answers that for you in the text, what you just heard in chapter 1. Don't worry about that. He wants us to pay attention to the gospel that's to be given to us. Why? He says so that we will not drift away. Okay? This brings us to another term. Drift away. Drifting off course. The idea here is that of a ship that's drifted off course or drifted past the harbor because the helmsman forgot to steer the boat into the harbor. He wasn't paying attention. Did you ever notice that drifting away usually goes unnoticed? Church, ask yourself this this morning. Don't worry about that. Ask, ask yourself this. Shh. 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 Okay. Shh. The Word of God is being taught. We listen. So, you ever notice that drifting away goes unnoticed? What have you been anchoring your life to? That's the important question. If you're anchoring it to anything other than Christ, you're in trouble. Okay? Don't anchor it on the government or the check. Who are you anchoring your life and your soul onto? Okay? Look at slide 26. The tides of the currents of our fallen world are trying to pull us out to sea and be destroyed, right? So what sirens of this world are preoccupying your heart and mind so, that, so much that you're not giving much thought to Christ at all? Think about that for this, this morning. What sirens of this world are preoccupying? Is it video games? Is it television? What's preoccupying your mind? Money, success, fame? Who knows? that you're not giving much thought to Jesus the Christ at all. What are we paying so much attention to that's not him? Do an inventory of your own life saying, are these, what are these things in my home or in my life that are hijacking my heart and causing me to drift away from not spending time in the Word? It should really, really be sobering if a Christian doesn't spend, and he calls himself or she, herself a Christian, and they don't spend any time in the Word during the week. They can watch, you know, Law and Order, CSI, Seinfeld reruns. They can watch their video games. They could be on Facebook for a thousand hours. And they don't even realize that they're not spending any time in the Word. And then when the crisis comes, 
God's the first one. You're not around. You're not on trial. And God's all like, you don't listen to me. You're listening to Oprah, but you won't listen to me. Think about it. What are we paying so much attention to that's not him? What's hijacked our hearts? I know these are tough questions, but they need to be asked. Because someday you're going to drop dead. You're going to stand before God. You're going to have to give an account. And when he's playing that video back to you and you see your life, you're going to be like, oh, but then it's too late. It's appointed once for a person to die and then to judgment. Please understand, there's no purgatory. There's no second chance. There's no get to do it over again. Once you draw your last breath here, based on the word of God, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of the deeds we did in our body, whether good or evil. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. So if you and I do not pay careful attention to our spiritual condition, we will find it will disintegrate all by itself. Before you even know it, your spiritual life becomes dull. You become more and more less interested in spiritual things. And the trinkets of the world start to preoccupy your eyes and your mind. The next thing you know, you find yourself being carried away by false teaching or secularism in this fallen world. Where do we find ourselves falling back when this happens? What does Paul tell? Slide 27, Galatians 5, 17-31. Here's Paul writing to this church in Galatia. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit. That's the capital S. That's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is against the flesh. They're in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things you please. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. They're plain to see. Which are immorality. That's where we get the word pornea from. Pornography. Immorality. Immoral behavior. Sleeping with somebody you're not married to and saying it's okay. Impurity. Sensuality. Idolatry. Worshiping things in creation instead of God. Could be jobs, people, sorcery, where we get the word pharmacia from, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying. I'm entitled, that person's got that, I'm entitled to that too. Drunkenness, the prototype for all addictions, right there 2,000 years ago in your scripture. Carousing. And things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice as a way of life these things, what's he say, church? Will not. They will not inherit the word of God. There it is in the scripture. So when we look at that laundry list of stuff, and you can see the enemy's trying to distract you right now in the service. Don't let it happen. This is the word of God. This is what he's telling us. If, the, if there's something on this list I need to repent of, I need to come clean with God and say, Lord, forgive me for practicing that as a way of life and turn away from that behavior and turn to Christ. I'm going to close up. Please take heed to what's being taught here this morning. Listen, it's not, just an, it's not enough just to show up to church and hear a sermon on Sunday morning. I'm going to close with what Solomon says, slide 28. <clears throat> Here's a dad writing again to his son who's maybe 17 years old. Here's a dad trying to speak into his son's life. Solomon says to his son, Son, listen. Son, pay attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings, son. Don't let them depart from your sight. 
Keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those who find them. The word of God is life, church, to you. Health to all their body. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. Hear me this morning. It is the word of God that changes a person's heart. But the word must first be placed inside of you so that the Holy Spirit can use it to start changing your life. When you bow your heads this morning, I know that I shared a lot. I wanted you to understand our king, the coronation of our king. His name is Jesus Christ. He's the God-man. I want you to think about this soberingly. If you were today to lose your life, physically from a heart attack, dropping dead, whatever, if you were to lose your life today, and you were to stand before holy God, and he was to look you straight dead in the face and say, why should I let you into heaven? You need to be thinking about what your answer would be, because there's only one correct answer to that question. You're not going to be able to say, well, I was a good person. That doesn't get you into heaven. I did good things for people. That's not going to get you into heaven. Oh, I put money in the tithing box at church. That's not going to get you into heaven. Well, I was baptized. That's not going to get you into heaven. None of that is going to get you into heaven. Repent and believe. Confess your sins to the Lord. Turn to Him for salvation. He is the only one that went to the cross, shed His blood on that cross to pay our sin debt in full. No angel, no man has ever done it. Only Jesus the Christ has done it. That's the only answer. Because I placed my faith and trust in you, Jesus. I believe that you died on that cross to pay my sin debt in full. And Lord, I acknowledge that the only reason I will ever step into heaven is because of what you accomplished for me. Listen, you and I can do nothing to get ourselves by our own merits in heaven. There's no act by which you and I can ever make ourselves good enough to go to heaven on our own. Okay? We were all born with a sin nature. Every one of us, since, the, uh, since Adam and Eve, we all were all born outside of the garden with a sin nature. Please remember, the very, very, very worst about you, and you know what the worst about you is, the very worst about you was placed onto Jesus Christ. He hung and bled and died on the cross. He paid the debt in full. He's the kinsman redeemer. He's the one that bought you back with a price. And the very, very best about him was now placed in your account. So when you stand before God the Father, you can be ushered into heaven, not because you deserve it, or I deserve it, but because of what Christ did for you and I on our behalf. That's the only way. Speaking in tongues doesn't get you into heaven. Nothing else does. Only the crimson shed blood of Jesus Christ because the blood that flowed through Jesus' veins was the very blood of God. That was the only crimson blood strong enough to wash away your sin. So if you're here this morning, I want to encourage you. If you have not surrendered your life to Christ, to do that now. And at this time, for those who are born-again believers, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. I'm going to have